So if you took a philosophy class in college, um, and you may have just heard about this in general, uh, you may have heard about this, this whole, uh, this question called the trolley car question. Um, and if you're, it, this, the way it goes, the way this scenario kind of plays out is uh, you are the driver of a trolley car, which is going down a train track, and uh, the brakes have gone out on the, tro the trolley car. Uh, and ahead of you are, are five workers on the track. And if you continue in your, in your current trajectory, uh, you, you, you will kill all five workers. Now, you notice as you are heading, barreling down the tracks toward these, these five workers, you notice that there is a side track that has one worker on it, but you can escape killing these five workers if you can just turn ever so slightly to get on this, this, this side track but then you will kill only the one worker. And so the dilemma is, is, it leaves you with this sort of question, what would you do? What, what, is, what is the right choice? What is just? So basically what this scenario is getting at is the question being asked by our, our world when it comes to, to things that uh, we, see a, we see some injustice in, like race and politics and socioeconomics or, uh, or, or the law or any sort of suffering, we would say, is unjust. And so the question remains, what is the right thing to do? What is justice? The uh, American philosopher and professor Michael Sandel wrote this in his 2010 book uh, entitled Justice, that there are three ways to think about justice. One is through pure welfare. So how do we prosper as individuals and societies? Because, we, we ask that question because prosperity leads to making one's welfare better. And so if we have more of it, we can make more people better. The second idea is the idea that justice means respecting freedom and individual rights. So you, you do what makes you happy as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else. So make as much money as you want. You can keep it all to yourself as long as it's not hurting anyone. Uh, you, can, you can play with whatever uh, sort, a sort of thing that gratifies you as long as it doesn't hurt someone else. And that's justice. A third way is virtue and the good life, which uh, Professor Sandel explains is the notion of a just society affirms certain value, virtues and conceptions of what the good life is. So the good life is being built by the world around us. If whatever we think the good life is, that's what we begin to create a definition of justice with, whatever it might be. And in some rights, some, some of these ideas have, have some good things to say. We would agree with them even. But only biblical justice is comprehensive enough to address the needs of the human condition. None of these other ideas that Professor Sandel highlights really get to the bottom of the human condition. How do we answer the brokenness of humanity? How do we answer the brokenness of the justice system? What is the right thing to do? And I think Mary has the answer in her song this morning. I think she offers for us, actually I know she offers for us, uh, if we were to add to Professor Sandel's list, uh, a fourth way, the true and better way, which is the way of the Lord. Because we find clearly laid out for us in scriptures that true justice is found in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus begins his ministry in this way by standing up in a synagogue and declaring that he came to bring justice to bear upon the earth, and particularly so on behalf of the poor, oppressed, weak, and vulnerable. He says these words in Luke chapter 4. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. 
He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this isn't something that Jesus begins with, uh, that's something that begins with Jesus' ministry alone. The idea of justice has always been the heart of God. A quick biblical theology of justice would involve us looking through the, the lens of the gospel narrative, which I like to, to sort of outline as creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. Creation being God's uh, original design was justice. He set it up this way. Adam is told to have dominion over all creation, physical and spiritual, to bring it under the order and rule of God in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. His original design was for, for us was self-giving, not self-serving, justice and not any type of injustice in the garden. And because of this, now God's people are to be concerned to subdue physical order as well as the spiritual disorder caused by sin, which is brought on by the fall in Genesis chapter 3. Because the fall is where humanity embraced injustice. It begins with self-serving. Looking out for number one, the Bible repeats the phrase, doing what was right in their own eyes over and over again throughout the Old Testament. The pastor, theologian Jonathan Edwards said this, he said, immediately in the fall, the mind of man shrank from its primitive greatness and expandedness to an exceeding smallness and contractedness. So Adam, just to illustrate, Adam goes from singing over his bride, singing over his wife, and giving God praise for for what he has provided for him. This is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. And then what seems like moments later, he's throwing this same beautiful woman under the bus and blaming God for his sin. It's the wife you gave me, Lord. From greatness to smallness, from expandedness to contractedness, and that's the fall. But thankfully, God has not left us alone in our unjust ways uh, to figure it all out. He brings to us redemption that is found in Christ, because in Jesus, true justice and true order are brought together. They are, uh, justice and order are redeemed, we would say. On the cross, or in Psalm 85.10, it says, uh, says that justice and mercy kiss, and where justice and mercy kiss is on the cross of Christ. Jesus brings them together. So that means God has torn down the dividing wall of hostility that was built uh, at the fall between humanity and God and humanity towards each other. And then finally, there's restoration. And be- because of his redemptive work, he is restoring order spiritually, socially, economically, politically, racially, and on and on the list goes. And so we, too, pursue restoration through pursuing justice. Francis Schaeffer asked this question, uh, in light of the biblical reality of God's, of, of Christ's redeeming work, uh, God's redeeming work in Christ, how should we then live? How should we now live our lives? Because this is true and because this is a very real reality. And you have the answer found in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? So what the incarnation is doing, God becoming man, is reminding us of the right thing to do. And Jesus' coming is the answer to that. 
And so through her song, Mary communicates to us three aspects of what this kind of justice looks like, of what true justice looks like. One, she shows us that biblical justice is the character of God, which is very important. Two, that biblical justice is care for the vulnerable. And then three, biblical justice is right relationships. So first, biblical justice is the character of God. Now, there is a great outcry from our world uh, crying out for justice to certain, you know, people groups within, within our world. Um, and, and as loud as that cry is, justice is not really the character of the world. As we saw from Professor Sandel's list, there are varying views of how justice should be carried out and not a lot of agreement around those things. Debates that are happening in our culture now, just to name a couple, uh, should we have an open border or should we have a closed border? What is more just? Uh, should we be pro-life or should we be pro-choice? That's a big one. Some think if we, if, we're, if we think one way, we're not caring for the mom. If we're thinking another way, we're not caring for the baby. What is the just thing? What is the answer? So just to clear this up, apart from God, these sorts of questions, and there are many, many more questions like this and debates like this, apart from God, none of this can be answered properly. Because when you divorce God from the discussion of justice, you will always end with the wrong answer ultimately, or the wrong solution, I should say. I was, um, there's a particular street corner, this isn't in my notes, but bear with me, because I just saw this yesterday. I was going to get coffee at the I-20 Washington Road Starbucks, and you know that corner, some of you, it's, you lock your doors when you go on that corner, okay? Um, and I just noticed it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And I grew up here and I, I know that it hasn't always been that way. And so there's a lot of prostitution and a lot of drug dealing just right on this particular corner. Um, but yesterday I was driving down Washington road, going to pick up my, uh, iced coffee with oat milk. Um, just in case, uh, you wanted to get me something, but I heard somebody yelling, which was not uncommon for this street corner. But I noticed that there was a man with what looked like his family, with a speaker, with a microphone, uh, standing on this particular corner, and he was preaching the gospel, which sometimes I get a little annoyed at that. And that's on me, not on the person preaching the gospel on the street corner. But this time I was like, I was praising God alongside this man and his family. Rolled down the window so I could hear the message that he was proclaiming because I was going, look, if, if no, nobody's going to do anything, let's at least do this. Because ultimately what's happening on that street corner or, or uh, in your neighborhood or, or wherever injustice may, may be uh, wreaking havoc The gospel is the answer every single time. And I know in the discussion of justice, we like to say, yeah, 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 we get that, but there's all of these other things that we have to do. So we need to, we can put the gospel back here. We know that exists. We know that's true, but we need to do these things, which is right. We do need to do certain things, and we'll get to that in a little bit. But if we put the gospel on the back burner, we will never reach the right answer ultimately. Because justice, justice is rooted in the very character of God and is the outworking of that character. That's what justice is. In his Reformed Dogmatics um, long, long set of, of, of theology books, but the theologian uh, Herman Bavinck describes justice as as two things, retributive and reparative. Retributive and reparative. And Mary, in her song, points to both of these things. Actually, the Bible points to both of these things, as we'll see. But retributive means that, that he punishes evil doings. Mary describes it in this way, quoting from Psalm 89 and verses 51 through 52, if you want to look there. She says, 
God has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. So God does not hold the guilty to be innocent. God does not just say, you do whatever you want as long as it's not hurting anyone. That is not how God operates. He doesn't spare the wicked. He doesn't do that. Even if you are looking out over the wicked doings of our world and saying, where is God? Why hasn't he done anything? God, Psalm chapter 10, read that this afternoon. Psalm chapter 10 reminds us, and it says this in the ESV translation, God is taking note of the wicked deeds of this world. And justice will prevail. We also see this in places like Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, reminding us that he doesn't spare the wicked. Um, And if you're familiar with your Bible, you'll know that this is the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then Ezekiel chapter 7 and verse 4 and verse 9 of that chapter, And my eye will not spare you, nor will I have pity, but I will punish you for your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord. And my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will punish you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I am the Lord who strikes. So God's justice is retributive, but it's also reparative or or, or restorative as well. And this aspect of God's justice, this restorative or reparative aspect of God's justice is more preeminent in the Bible than is retributive justice. Mary says again in, in, in verses 52 and 53, he has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. And then you have a, 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 the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians 1, who shows both aspects of, these, uh, of God's justice here, but he places an emphasis on the restorative, the reparative justice of God when he writes, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. So God is for you. God is going to show justice uh, towards those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Justice. The gospel is God in Christ identifying with the weak and the vulnerable. And the reason he can do this is because he comes as one who is weak and vulnerable. He experiences our suffering. He experiences uh, the injustices of this world. He experiences our brokenness, and he does that to the point of death. Paul describes it in this way in 2 Corinthians verse eight, uh, chapter 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Why did he do this? So that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Now, I would say for the majority of us in this room, because we're Americans, (laughs) we're we're a a wealthy country, a wealthy nation, and I would say most of us are are, are fairly well off. We're doing okay. But I know that none of you have ever made yourself poor so that someone else could become rich. None of you have ever given up your monthly salary, yearly salary, and given it to someone else so that they could prosper. But Jesus has. That's what he did. He became poor so that you might become rich. 
And out of this reality of what God has done for us in Christ should come our own pursuits of biblical justice because because of the second part of what biblical justice is, which is care for the vulnerable. So it's no surprise that Jesus himself comes into this world as one of the most vulnerable members of society. Doesn't get any more vulnerable than this, I think. He comes as a baby. So one study I read estimated, and it's hard to kind of get statistics, obviously, from the first century, so they're kind of guessing on this a little bit, but it estimated that one out of three infants died, uh, not just in childbirth, but within the first year of life in the first century. And the average mortality rate before uh, a child would would reach puberty was about 48.8%. So about half would make it. So needless to say, whether those statistics are, are exactly accurate or not, needless to say, to be a child, to be a baby during the first century was dangerous. It was just dangerous to, to be alive if you made it out. So Jesus knew what it meant personally to be vulnerable throughout the entirety of his life. From the moment he was born to the moment he died, he was vulnerable. So one of the main Hebrew words for justice is this word mishpat. And it occurs more than 200 times in the Old Testament. And when it's used, it's communicating the same uh, idea we've been talking about around giving someone what they are due. So that might look like punishment for the evildoer. But that also might look like protection or care for those who are vulnerable. Now, if you were to look up these 200 plus references in the Old Testament, you will begin to notice that several classes of people show up. And so there's four classes of people that show up here. Uh, The widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. This is also known as the quartet of the vulnerable, so that helps you remember it. Um, But the widow, the orphan, the immigrant, and the poor. And I think you could expand this group to include babies inside and outside the womb, children, uh, the homeless, single parents at some level, the elderly, anyone who, who uh, who could be tagged as a vulnerable group of people. So we're getting a glimpse here of, of this biblical theology of the vulnerable this morning because it's laced throughout the scriptures from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And just to quote to you from the New Testament, of one verse, James chapter 1, verse 27, he just gets after it just very clearly and very practically when he says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So when we're thinking about giving someone their due when it comes to the vulnerable, we must first ask the question, what does God's word call us to? And so just using the quartet of the vulnerable here, we'll start with the widow, for the widow. In in Psalm chapter 68, verse 45, God is described as the defender of the widows. God is described in that way. God defends the widows. So this, we can say, is an important task, something that we should give our attention to, something that should make our ears perk up. If if God himself is the defender of the widows, then we probably should be too. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, Paul took this seriously, and he, he gives uh, this young pastor, Timothy, instructions in who widows are and how the church is meant to care for them well. So a widow, according to the New Testament, is a woman uh, who has lost her husband, and then Paul uh, draws some parameters around this. He wants to be very clear about what's going on here. So Paul says in 1 Timothy uh, that they are to be 60 or older, 
having been the wife of one man, having a reputation for good works, and if she has brought up children, if she has shown hospitality, if she has washed the saints' feet, if she has assisted those in distress, and if she has devoted herself to every good work. That's Paul's parameters. Paul says, those are the widows that you are to care for as the church, Timothy. Now, and before you start writing that down and starting crossing people off your list because they're 59 and not 60 or, or whatever, or they're like, they have never, I've never had my feet washed by anybody. Paul, Paul is, is not trying to cover every possible situation here for Timothy. He's kind of giving him general guidelines to discern who actually is a widow in their midst. So he's giving, them a, giving him a general description, and he's assuming that Timothy, being a good pastor, is discerning enough to make exceptions based on the circumstances. So for us, uh, this might look like um, a single mom who has recently lost her husband and now has to, to work more to provide for her herself and her children and needs some extra helping hands and uh, financial assistance for a season uh, or just the mere presence of others. That might be one example. Then you have in Acts chapter 6, we see the care of widows in in the church take place very, very practically. So if you're familiar with Acts chapter 6, you'll know this is when the installation of deacons, the servants of the church, uh, happened. And the reason why it it kind of, uh, the deacons were, were enlisted in this way was because of widows, Widows were being neglected uh, in the church at that time, and it was causing a stir in the church. It almost actually caused a split in the church. And so the elders got together with the other members of the congregation, and they elected seven men to serve as deacons. And one of their primary tasks at that particular moment was to figure out practical ways to help the widows in their church. An important task caring for the widows, defending the widows. So that's vulnerable number one. Vulnerable number two is for the orphan. And let me just say, I know I'm not not gonna hit everything that you want me to hit in these particular categories. I'm gonna miss categories too. Um, You can send me emails about it if you wanna complain. I'll probably delete it right away, Um, file it away in in my trash can. But but I I, I do recognize all of these as very, very important. And I know there, there is lots of ins and outs to all of them. So just to give you that, that little preface there. Uh, because I know this next one for the orphan is very, very near and dear to a, a lot of people's hearts in this room. And I get it. And I'm not going to do it justice. But I'm just going to highlight a couple of things just to, to, to kind of perk your, your thought process in this. Um, because in Psalm 68-45, which I quoted earlier that, that God is the defender of the widows, It also describes God as the defender of the orphans as well. Some of you uh, are called to bring orphans into your homes uh, for a season, if that has has to do with foster care, um, or for a lifetime through adoption. And I know we've walked through that with a number of people in this room, and some of you have already adopted. Praise God for that. But all of us, Every single one of us who calls, our, who calls themselves a Christian, all of us are to care for or, orphans at some level. It is not something that you just go, well, they're doing it over here, um, so that's all, that's all I, I don't really need to do that because they're kind of taking care of that, that area of Christianity for us, and so I don't have to do anything. But this might look like you may not be feel uh, sense a call for uh, to have uh, you know do foster care or even adopt, but you can financially help others who want to do that and who who sense a call to do that. Uh, you may give um, respite care when they do care for uh, for for uh, for orphans, for those who are in foster care or those who uh, are being adopted. That's a, that's a massive need for those families. And I would just to say, just to challenge you a little bit, even if you're the, of that person too, because I had to wrestle with, I had to wrestle with the text all week, and so you guys just get to wrestle with it for 45 minutes. And so this was perking, perking my mind as well, and I haven't talked to my wife about this. But, uh, but also, what does it look like for you to 
foster a child? What would it take for you to do that? What does it look like for you to even adopt? Even if you already have a slew of kids, what does that look like? I would challenge you in that. I know for us, we've, we've looked at fostering before, and um, one, one, of the th- one of the takeaways from that was the foster system, at least in Georgia, in the Augusta area, is overwhelmed. The, not enough caseworkers, not enough people to care for children, and they need families. Just think about it. Because this is not something that we are exempt from as believers. This is something God is calling all of us to at some level. So think about it. So you have the widows, you have orphans. Uh, the third is, is immigrants. Now, when this topic comes up, uh, political agendas, uh, I know, cannot help to be brought up in this conversation. Um, and I would just want to say from the outset, if you thought this about me, I, I am not an expert on U.S. foreign policy. So uh, I, I hope you don't expect that of me. Um, but I can say pastorally, what I've seen when it comes to this topic of immigration or, or taking care of immigrants is a trust in what our government says and implements more than what God's word says to us. Because the, the issue of immigration is, is actually a very common theme in the scriptures. It comes up over and over again throughout the Bible. And more often than not, we find the immigrant referenced in a positive sense in the Bible, not a negative sense. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 34. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. So that word stranger can be translated as immigrant in the Hebrew. You shall treat the immigrant who sojourns with you as the native among you, and you shall love him as yourself, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt, I am the Lord your God. So I know when it comes to this topic, there's a lot of yeah buts amongst Christians um, when we begin to talk about immigrants or immigration. So, So it might go like this. Yeah, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor. It's clearly there in the scriptures. I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but if we allow people across our borders, they'll take our jobs and they'll kill our children. So we shouldn't allow it. They should stay in their own country. But I think a better approach, a better approach would be to rest in God's providence and God's plan for this world, knowing he knows about borders and countries and different sorts of people groups in this world, that he's not ignorant to those things and and that we need to help him figure out how to organize people. So to trust in God's providence, knowing that he has called us to the nations as Christians. God says to go and make disciples of all nations. And if we're not called to go to another nation, as some are, well, you are in luck. Because God is bringing the nations to you. Literally at your doorstep especially in this city that has a, a military base and, uh, and, and a medical community and other sources that bring in people from different parts of the world. So instead of arguing about politics or arguing about whatever that we should do with our border, we should welcome. We should open the borders of our homes and our dinner tables. Teach those who come into our country, if they don't know the language, to teach them the language, to share and to share with them, most importantly, the good news of Jesus Christ, who came vulnerable to save those who are vulnerable. So the last part of the quartet is the poor. The Bible assumes our care and right treatment of the poor everywhere throughout the scriptures. 
Proverbs 14.31, whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker, but whoever is kind to the needy honors God. Proverbs 22.2, rich and poor have this in common, the Lord is the maker of them all. So this carries over into the New Testament when Jesus exhorted his disciples to not only be generous to the poor, but to welcome them into their homes and into their families as well. So we're to be driven not by our financial comfort. We're not to be driven by our kind of like economic status. We're not to be driven even by where we live uh, in this city, whether we live, you know, in an apartment or in the suburbs or we try to, you know, get away from uh, people and so we move out into the country and get land so we don't have to be close to the brokenness. We don't have to be close to the poor at times. So, so don't let that drive you. But let the truth and reality of what the, what the writer of Proverbs says, that all people are made in his image, are made in God's image. And that levels the playing field. Rich and poor alike are all the same in the eyes of God. So these things should not only be be causes taken up by politicians and pro-life centers and homeless shelters or any kind of ideological organization. Why? Because of our next point. In our life together as the church, we therefore have right relationships because of what God has done for us in Christ. So because we have been redeemed, because God has reconciled us in Christ back to himself, this now is changing who we are. And not only is it changing who we are, it is also changing the reality around us. So no longer are we, are, are we kind of seeking after the American dream or how much money I can get into my retirement fund so I can be happy and comfortable in my old age. God changes all of that. So biblical justice is right relationships. And so this is going to be also very, very practical because, um, because it has to be. It has to be something that we don't just hear with our ears because it's very easy for us to do um, and not not have any action behind it. That's not Christianity. And so in this final point, we we see where this this does get very practical for us because in, in that biblical justice is experienced in these right relationships with each other and with our neighbor. So uh, this gets to the second Hebrew word, um, that I cannot pronounce, um, and I won't even attempt it, but it's translated uh, as being just, but oftentimes it's, it's translated in your Bible as being righteous. But it, can also, it also means being just, so it can be translated either way. But the use of the word being there in both accounts, being just, being righteous, communicates that we have something to do here as believers. Now, let me just be clear. I am not saying you're doing these things so that you earn your salvation. We do not earn our salvation. I don't believe that at all. That's called works righteousness. That's heresy. That is not what, we, what I'm saying up here. But as Christians, as we have been changed by the gospel again, that we have experienced the grace and mercy of Christ, we are then changed and it should change the way that we live. It should lead to action. So this, this word's fuller meaning has in mind uh, your, because it has in mind your day-to-day living. The rhythms of your life when, where, where you conduct all relationships in family and society um, with fairness and generosity and equity and kindness and compassion and patience. So how should we then live as believers? Righteously toward all people. Justly toward all people. No matter their color, no matter their disability, no matter their socioeconomic uh, status, no matter their political views or their social views or, or, their, or their, uh, whether they're poor or whether they're rich, uh, whatever their nationality might be, whether they can speak English well or can't speak English well, uh, none of that should drive us. The only thing that should drive us is 
righteousness towards all people. Now, this flies in the face of what our news channels and, and, and leaders kind of model for us because this word is tied directly to who we are as God's people. God has made us righteous. We are a righteous people. We are to be a people who model the righteousness of God on this earth. We've talked about that before, that the world has every right to, to kind of peek in on what we're doing to see what does it look like for these people to live righteously, particularly toward each other. So the ways I've seen this, and I've seen this happen a lot at Christ the King. Just to brag on you guys a bit, and, and I see this more and more, but, uh, but, but here's some highlights. Making and taking meals to those who've had a baby, those who are sick, or those who are just walking through a difficult season. Uh, a family letting another member live with them while finding a new place to live or trying to save up for a house because it's expensive to live in our world nowadays. Uh, someone giving money to another to help pay for an unexpected cost that they had and they weren't expecting and they don't have the money for. Hosting city group gatherings. That sounds small, but I know to, to have people in your home every single week can wear you out and can wear your furniture out and the things that you have in there. And so I know that's a lot, but you do it. Lending your vehicle to someone who doesn't have a car or whose car is in the shop. Uh, picking it, we're doing that right. Somebody's lent us their vehicle this week. Picking up another member's kids who had a family emergency to bring them to worship and then feed them dinner, or just to pick them up from school and to bring them to their home and feed them dinner so that their parents can rest. Giving money for groceries, babysitting for each other, finding jobs for each other, just having people into your home just to, to talk and to, for them to have a respite from what's going on in their life. All of that and more I've seen played out in this church. All of that. But other ways we can make this happen, just to get you thinking even more, asking the question, how do we advocate for our neighbor? How are we looking outside of, of, of ourselves and how are we advocating for our neighbor? How do we bring how do we bring biblical justice to bear upon our place, our neighborhood, our job, our family? What does that look like? Taking the time to personally meet the needs of the handicapped or the elderly or the hungry, the lonely in our neighborhoods. And if you live in a, in a, a middle-class suburban neighborhood, uh, this involves you kind of opening your eyes to this reality because it does exist there. I would say sometimes more so. And then another, another practical thing is to take a, take a good, hard, long look at your profession. What do you do for a living? And maybe getting together with other Christians in your workplace and starting some sort of think tank with those in your field who are believers and doing something besides a Bible study or a prayer group. Well, those, those are needed at times, but typically what that does is draw in nominal Christians um, just to make themselves feel good about themselves. But actually getting with these other Christians going, how can we make this place better according to the gospel? What can we do? What does that look like? And maybe you're the only Christian in your area or wherever you, you work, and maybe that's just the question that you are posed with now. How can you make it better according to the gospel? What changes do you need to make in your rhythms? What changes do you need to make um, and just... I should probably say, what do you need to repent of in your attitude towards your work <laughs> and towards the people that you work with? Do they even see Jesus in you? Do they even see this righteousness in you? So this might look like, if you're in the medical field, taking on the hardest patient on your floor in the hospital. That, that, that you can, can not only offer a, feel, a physical healing touch to, but also offer the balm of the gospel just in the way that you treat them and care for them, even if they're cussing you out, because I know this happened to a number of you guys. You have the Spirit of God living inside of you, meaning you don't do this on your own. You don't go in there in your own power and strength. I know that. 
Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understand and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And this is what we put before people. Not ourselves, but the steadfast love, justice, and righteousness of our God. So wouldn't you rather put things that the Lord delights into play rather than whatever it is you do to make it through your 8 to 12 hour day? How would this transform the way that you worked? How would this transform the way that you uh, parented your children at home that you're with all day possibly? How would this change the way that you interacted with your neighbor that you see every now and again? How would this change that? Knowing that when you do this, you are bringing the reality of the arrival of Jesus into that place, into that situation, into that person's life. And if you remember back in our study in, in Genesis, we talked about how we are, we are creating these different, pla- these different altars, these different places of worship, these, uh, essentially planting these, these, uh, these tiny gardens of Eden wherever we place ourselves so that people can experience the truth and reality of the gospel, declaring that God exalts the humble, that God fills the hungry with good things, that God looks on our humble estates, And you may be thinking, the task is too great for me. That seems impossible. You don't know the place I work. You don't know the brokenness of the system. There is no way that I'm changing the entire U.S. Army just by myself. And you would be exactly right to think this, and appropriately so, because you know your limitations. And this is the hard part of living between the times, uh, because Advent reminds us, the church, that, that we, are, we are in between the Advents. Advent means waiting. So, so, so the people of God have already waited the first time in the first Advent. Jesus has come. But now we are waiting as well. We are in this second Advent. So we are between the Advents. And we are waiting on Jesus' return. We are, we are between the already of the kingdom and the not yet of the kingdom of God. And this is what has been called uh, proximate justice which is simply imperfect justice that recognize that something is better, uh, better than nothing is the best we can do in this age. So instead of saying, I'm going to change the entire hospital system, or I'm going to change uh, all of Fort Eisenhower, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to be the, the, the person who changes everything, instead I'm just going to think a little smaller. I'll concentrate on the floor that I'm on during my shift and the couple of coworkers that I have around me, or the people that I work with uh, from a day-to-day basis. I'm just going to pray for them, pray for God to open doors to the gospel, and that's what I'm going to pursue. Instead of trying to correct the wrong of so many greedy individuals and corporations in every area of our world, think a little smaller. And that is justice. The kind of uh, Steve Garber, who's kind of like a, I don't know what you would call him, kind of a philosopher slash Christian thinker, and he kind of thinks more deeply than most of us would want to think, and he kind of helps us out with that by writing books and articles. But he said this towards this particular subject. He says, we take up our responsibilities as citizens, realizing that our best efforts are clay-footed, our best insights are flawed, and yet it matters for this earth and the one that is to come that we work alongside others to establish what the author Walker Percy called signposts in a strange land of what is already real and true and right in the now but not yet of the kingdom of God. So essentially, you are called as a believer in whatever spheres God currently has you in to be a signpost to the truth and reality, not of yourself, but of the incarnation of God in Christ. Why would, we do, why would we do any of these things? Why would we say, all right, that's what I want to do? Well, the reason we do that is because that's exactly what Jesus came to do. 
that he has come to make all things new. He has come to, to wipe away every tear from every eye, to, to rid this world of suffering, to rid this world of injustice and brokenness. And one day that will come true. So God's justice in Christ, what Mary biblically helps us to understand, is both punitive and generous. It's both bringing the light of the gospel to bear upon injustices in our world, whether that be racially, politically, or socioeconomically, and moving towards the needs through our generosity. Doing the right thing. Doing that which is just. Doing that which is righteous. The missionary theologian Leslie Newbigin said this. He said, when the church begins to live in this way, the congregation becomes a hermeneutic, an interpretation of the gospel in and for the world. Singing, we could say. Singing like Mary of the arrival of Christ through our words and deeds and actions into the world all year long. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, the father of, of the lonely, the father of, of the vulnerable, the, the father who takes care of those who are weak, who, who exalts the humble, who scatters the proud, who fills those who are hungry with good things. You are the God that we pray to. You are the God that we trust in. You are the God um, that we know loves us because of what you have done for us already in Christ. And so I pray, even as we have thought through a, a large topic on what justice looks like, I pray that we would always be looking to you, always be looking for you for the ultimate answer of what it means uh, for us as a people, as your people, to be just in this world. And I pray that even as we are sent out into this world this week, that we would be a people that others can look at and see and experience the righteousness of God in Christ. Not because of anything that, 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 that is in us, but, but in everything that you have done for us and in us in Christ. And that is what would be highlighted. So God, I pray that you would do that in us, that you would do that in Christ the King Church and its people, that you would make us a light to the nations. We pray all of these things in the name of Christ. Amen.